This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus and that in him, through him, there's so much that we can be thankful for. And uh, we do indeed pray that you'd uh, give us eyes which see uh, the good things you do, the ways that you stretch and uh, encourage and grow us, the things that we can thank you for. And may we be uh, more thankful for all that you've done for us in Jesus. Thank you again that we can um, take time out over these few days to study the scripture. And we ask you this morning that uh, as we look at this passage in 2 Corinthians, again, you'll uh, strengthen our hearts and uh, increase our understanding as your spirit takes your word and applies it to us. And we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen. Well, some of you have been asking after the church that uh, I'm involved uh, with and where we first met uh, Y and Maria some time ago. Um, I, I trained as an Anglican minister and after working in uh, the Anglican church for a while, uh, we left and with a group of people started uh, an independent, non-denominational church in Perth and it's been going for about um, 11 years and uh, I always thought that you know the longer we went, uh, the stronger our church would get, uh, the bigger it would get and that uh, you know if you made the 10 year mark, uh, obviously you're going to be around for a while. But I'd have to say that uh, in the last few years our church has never felt it's never been smaller and it's never felt more fragile and uh, feels like it could blow over in a stiff breeze, as uh, we say back home. And I was going to tell you about some of the people that uh, I've been ministering to over the life of our church. There's Veronica. I'm calling her Veronica. I've changed people's names to protect their identity. Uh, so when I mention someone called Y, you know, it's, it's not it's not this guy. Uh, there's Veronica, uh, who came to something that we hosted, but then disappeared. I had a phone number, so I rang and left a message, 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 and finally uh, she called me back. Uh, we met up for coffee. I clarified for her the gospel, but she, she said she really struggled to believe in a resurrection. So we met again for coffee and had the same conversation. And again later for coffee and had the same conversation. And again later for coffee and had the same conversation. All this time she was uh, coming to our church until after a while she didn't. So we met again for coffee and had the same conversation but this time she didn't come back. Well, there's Fran, who seemed to just never to be able to believe that God accepted her on the basis of Jesus' death. She'd come to church for a while, then disappear. So I'd meet for a chat, hear her anxieties, reassure her with the gospel. She'd come back to church for a while and then disappear. So uh, I'd meet her for a chat, hear her anxieties, reassure her with the gospel. She'd come back to church for a while and then disappear. Until now, after 10 or 12 years with us, she's uh, disappeared, doesn't want to come back and at best wants to go to a church where she knows no one's going to talk to her. Or there's Mary, 
whose heart's desire was to see her husband and teenage kids become Christian. And so she was forever changing the church that she went to in the hope that she'd find one that she liked and that they were willing to come to as well. I met her when for some, she had for some time given up on finding a church that would uh, suit them. But I said to her, you need to go to a church. I, I don't care if it's not our church, but you need to go to a church. And if you really want your family to be converted, you need to go to a church that they like, more importantly than that you like. After trying several other churches, they, they eventually did come to our church. And her kids loved it and even wanted to come back every week. Her husband loves it. He even comes when she doesn't. And he's uh, come so far in his thinking that she tells me he's become a Christian. And yet, rather than be so excited about all that that you can't keep her away from our church, she almost never comes because she doesn't like the conversations people have after supper. Well, there's Jack whose marriage was on the rocks because he'd been having an affair. We, we met for a couple of months working through Simply Christianity and he would regularly, I'd say weekly, be in tears when confronted with the truth that he was an adulterer, he was under God's judgement and the only way to save his marriage was to turn to Christ. But he turned instead to his mistress lost his wife, had a baby, now he's lost the mistress and at this point in time it would seem he's lost his chance at eternal life too. Or there's Greg and Jan who after 12 years with us have left to go to a new church. One that they haven't found yet but what they're looking for, they told me, is a church that has a building that has what they call appropriate symbols of our faith, like a cross on the wall and a baptismal front at the front. Sometimes I wonder why I do ministry. Oftentimes I find ministry is heartbreaking. And at those times I find myself asking, have I in fact lost heart? But I'm sure it's not just me. I'll bet at times it's the same for you. If, if not in terms of your Christian ministry in particular, then perhaps in terms of your Christian life in general. There are difficult times when you find yourself wondering, how can I not lose heart in this. At some of those times I think of others who are doing or have done it so, so much tougher than me. I think of others throughout the world and throughout history who've been imprisoned for their ministry. I think of others throughout the world and throughout history who have been physically persecuted for their Christian faith. And I often think of the Apostle Paul. We observe his hardships as we read through the book of Acts and through his letters. 
And occasionally he makes mention of his difficulties. He tells Timothy that Demas, in love with the world, has deserted me. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. At my first defence, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. And he tells the uh, Corinthians, he tells the Corinthians um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, just listen as I read for you, I've suffered far more imprisonments, countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And yet despite those experiences, Paul is able to urge the Corinthians at the end of uh, 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, saying, Therefore, my beloved, be always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. But why was he so overwhelmingly confident that his ministry was not in vain when at so many times it must have seemed like it was? How was he able not just to keep going but to keep abounding in it? Why is it that Paul didn't lose heart? Well, believe it or not, his answers to those questions are here in 2 Corinthians chapters 4 and 5. So I want to look at that with you now. And what we'll learn is that the resurrection of Jesus is the basis for a new resilience. The resurrection of Jesus is the basis for a new resilience. Malcolm Fraser was uh, Australian Prime Minister in the 1970s. Uh, he was a funny sort of a guy, a bit um, aloof, I suppose, and probably uh, best known for uh, two things. Once, uh, fortunately after he was uh, our Prime Minister, he was uh, found locked outside of his room in a hotel corridor without any trousers on. Um, not something you want your Prime Minister to be uh, well known for. But the other thing, probably more famous for, is uh, that he made a speech uh, in, one, in which he uh, said, life wasn't meant to be easy. And those words were, I think, used to characterise him as uh, some sort of a snob who was disinterested in and dismissive of the difficulties of ordinary people's lives. What's not well known, though, is that he was really discussing a willingness to take on difficult tasks and that his words were taken out of context because the words came from a play by George Bernard Shaw, Back to Methuselah, 
And the full quotation is, Life wasn't meant to be easy, but take courage, child. It can be glorious. Seems to me that Paul could so easily have used the same quotation. Because when he describes the hardships of his ministry, intention is not to, you know, complain or elicit sympathy. But his intention is to make the point that his ministry was not meant to be easy. Here again, the words from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses uh, 8 to 11. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. One of the things that Paul's obviously saying in these verses is that his ministry was not meant to be And it doesn't sound like it was, does it? According to uh, verses 8 to 11, he'd been uh, afflicted, he'd been perplexed, he'd been persecuted, he'd been forsaken, struck down, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, always given over to death. It's most likely that the Corinthian people he was writing to had even become embarrassed by these kind of experiences Paul was having. You know, they seemed to have a bit of a taste, the Corinthians seemed to have a bit of a taste for things successful and spectacular and even the spectacularly successful. But afflictions and persecutions, they sort of don't really fit in with that kind of a way of thinking, do they? So Paul wants his readers to understand that his experiences are nothing to be embarrassed about. On the contrary, they have a very important purpose in that they show that the power of the gospel belongs to God and not the person who preaches it. As he says of his weakness and frailty in verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay so that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The treasure is defined in the verse before as the, the knowledge of the glory of God that's in Jesus. But Paul's saying this knowledge is imparted by a fragile and frail person in order to show that the power of that knowledge belongs not to the person, but to God. And the way Paul's hardships demonstrate God's power is by demonstrating the resurrection power of God in the Gospel. The way it works is this. When Paul refers in verse 8 to being afflicted in every way, I guess he's describing in uh, some way a similar experience to the suffering of death of Jesus. 
But when God saves Paul from those afflictions by allowing him not to be crushed, it's like God restoring him to life as he did with Jesus. Or when Paul talks about being persecuted, he's describing a similar experience to the suffering and death of Jesus. But when God saves him from those persecutions by allowing him not to be destroyed, it's like God is restoring him to life as he did with Jesus. And so Paul summarises this pattern when he says in verse 10 that he is always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Do you hear him saying that God's purpose in allowing him to suffer death-like hardships is so that God can save Paul from them? And in saving him, God demonstrates the life-giving power that he used to save Jesus. For as he writes in verse 11, For we who live are always being given over to to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. It's as though Paul sees his own experiences as a living illustration of the gospel. And more than a living illustration, in fact it's a living visual aid to his preaching of the gospel. Because when non-believers see this pattern of death and resurrection in Paul's ministry, it helps them to comprehend the gospel and perhaps become believers of it too. I think this is what Paul means when he says in verse 12, So death is at work in us, but life in you. You see, given what he said before, you're sort of expecting to say, so death is at work in us, but life is at work in us too. But instead he says, life is at work in you. And I think by that he means, as people look at Paul's experience of of death and resurrection, it's a visual aid that helps them to understand what the gospel is about and by the grace of God come to believe it. For this reason, Paul says, his ministry wasn't meant to be easy. And perhaps for the same reason, my ministry, your ministry, indeed our Christian lives, might not be meant to be easy either. But it strikes me that there's even more to what Paul's saying than that. Because as I reflect on what he's written here, it seems to me that before this death and resurrection pattern in his experiences helps other people to believe what he preaches, it first of all gave Paul the conviction to continue preaching despite the difficulty. So this brings me to the second observation we need to make of this section, continuing by conviction. In the next few verses, Paul says that he continues to speak because of what he believes. Have a look at uh, verses 13 and 14. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak. 
knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Paul says that, just like the person he's uh, quoting, the psalmist, he speaks because he believes. Now we might think that he means, you know, he speaks because he believes that God alone is God and the only one deserving our worship. Or he speaks because he believes that Jesus is the one and only way to salvation. And of course he certainly does believe those things. But here he's talking about speaking because he believes that God raises the dead. As he explains at the end of verse 13, saying, We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us with you and bring us into his presence. Paul is saying here that he speaks to non-Christian people, he speaks to people of God raising from the dead those who follow Jesus because he knows that God will. But how does Paul you know, know this so convincingly, so grippingly? Well, he knows because that's what God has used Paul's own hardships and deliverances to teach him. He knows, he is convinced that God will raise the dead because that's what God has used his hardships and deliverances to teach him. To see him say that very clearly, just uh, turn back to chapter 1. And in a couple of verses here, we learn that God's initial purpose in afflicting Paul to the point of death was to teach him to rely on the God who raises the dead. Have a look at verses 8 and 9. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But this was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You know, I sometimes hear uh, Christians advising others or advising me, uh, you just need to trust God, you just need to rely on God. But Paul's a bit more specific here, isn't he? Because he says uh, in verse 9 that it was all about him learning to rely on, the God, on God who raises the dead. And Paul must have learnt that lesson well, it seems, because in verse 10 he says, God delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. That sounds to me like a man who is continuing to rely on the resurrection power of God. 
So in this passage that we're focusing on, chapter 4 and into chapter 5, Paul says, we believe and so we speak, knowing that he who raised Jesus will raise us. And we now know that Paul knows this convincingly, so convincingly, because he's learned it from his own near-to-death but delivered-to-life type experience. The same hardships that are intended by God to be visual aids to other people to trust in the resurrection power of God have already taught Paul to trust in that same resurrection power. And in fact he's learned the lesson so well that it's become the conviction that enables him to continue no matter what his ministry is like. Despite the ongoing nature of the hardships Paul says in verses 10 and 11 are always part of his experience he continues by conviction. So he's able to say then in the verses that follow we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. I reckon what, what Paul has said uh, you know, so far sufficiently explains why he doesn't lose heart. But like any preacher, Paul figures, why stop when you can keep going? So he says in uh, verse 16, he says in verse 16, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Which I think is very honest, don't you? You see, he's not dismissing his hardships as being insignificant or inconsequential. He doesn't say they have no impact or they do no damage. And I think my observation would be that sometimes in some Christian circles that when uh, you know one Christian might be talking about the hardship they are experiencing, the other person who's counselling can at times just be very dismissive of the reality of the difficulty and is sort of too quick to say, oh, you know, just rely on God, it'll all be all all right, or those things shouldn't be affecting you like they are. But, you know, Paul's honest here, isn't he? Not dismissing these things as insignificant or inconsequential. Not saying they've had no impact on him or they do no damage. It always interests me that that um, passage from Corinthians that I read before, chapter 11, where he lists, you know, I was flogged, uh, I was uh, given the 40 lashes less one so many times and I was shipwrecked five times and all of it. It always intrigues me that Paul actually remembers how many times those things happened. So, you know, he's not dismissive of that sort of stuff. He knows that it hurts. He acknowledges that it hurts. He acknowledges that they wear him down. In fact, they make it feel as though his outer body is wasting away. He feels like he's dying, given the words he's using. But even though they do have that impact on his outer body, his inner body, he says, his inner self is being renewed. Again, it's the resurrection power of God at work in him. Now, he gives a few reasons for this renewal. 
He says it's because he considers the eternal weightiness of the glory to come, or that when he considers the eternal weightiness of the glory to come, he can see the momentary lightness of these very real hardships. And he says he can uh, see that because he's focused on the things that are eternal, not on the things that are transient. Paul keeps his eyes on the prize, as we say. But for me, I guess the, the standout among the reasons that he mentions here for the inner self being renewed is the one he gives in chapter 5, verse 1, where he says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal, in the heavens. He's talking about his resurrection body. And there are a few contrasts there that emphasise how much better our resurrection body will be. It's a building compared to this tent that we have now. It's a heavenly body compared to this earthly one that we have now. It is eternal and therefore indestructible compared to this frail, fragile, destroyable thing we have now. But again, what strikes me is the certainty with which Paul speaks in verse 1. We know, he says, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, eternal, in the heavens. Now, it might sound a bit, a bit cavalier, a bit cowboy, as we say, a bit too carefree, maybe, but it always seems to me that Paul is pretty much saying here that he keeps putting his life on the line for the sake of preaching Christ because he knows that the worst thing that can happen is that he die and get raised to all the glory of eternal life. The worst thing that can happen is that he die and get raised to all the glory of eternal life. Paul was able to keep going through the difficulties faced in his Christian life because he knew that life was not meant to be easy so as to demonstrate the resurrection power of God. He continues to speak on the basis of this conviction that God raises the dead knowing that the worst thing that can happen is that if he dies, God raises him and he enters into the glory of eternal life. Now I know that Paul here is talking very much about his Christian ministry. But is it too much to say that the same resurrection-inspired resilience can influence our Christian lives more generally. Is it not the resurrection power of God at work in you as you suffer abuse from, say, your boss? Yet every Monday morning, there you are again, not complaining, ready to do the best you can for him, hoping that there might be some opportunity to speak to him about Jesus, 
hoping that in you he can see Jesus at work. Is not the resurrection power of God at work in you in your willingness to stay in a difficult marriage? Your closest friends know something of your struggles. Might they see God's resurrection power at work in that they know there are times you felt like leaving but because God enables you to, you stay? Or is his resurrection power at work in you in the way you are able to keep forgiving that person, that family member, rather than have nothing more to do with them? Or is his resurrection power at work in you in the way you remain optimistic about your glorious eternal future, even though the health problem that you have been suffering way too young keeps getting worse rather than better? The resurrection power of God can indeed inspire a resilience in our overall commitment to living for Jesus. And of course, as much as it applies to the Christian life in general, it most certainly applies to our Christian ministries in particular. If you truly believe that the worst thing that could happen if you spoke to people about Jesus would be that you'd die and enter into all the glory of being raised from the dead. If you truly believe that that's the worst thing that could happen, how much more would that embolden you to speak to people about Jesus? How much more would you be likely to do what those guys in the mission video we saw last night? How much more would it strengthen you to endure hardship for Jesus' sake? To risk being cut out of that uh, social group of non-Christians because you talk about Jesus and Christians. To risk not being promoted at work because as a Christian, your conscience wouldn't let you do certain things that the job requires. If you truly believe that the worst thing that could happen if you spoke about Jesus would be that you die and enter the glory of being raised to eternal life, how much more would it strengthen you to support your church financially or a ministry financially to the point where it actually is a sacrifice for you. To read your Bible during your commute to work or to leave the Christian book you're reading face up on your desk at work in the hope that somebody's actually going to notice it and ask you about it. Or to say to your family that at the end of dinner we're going to start reading a short section from the Bible from now on and pray up to invite your Christian and non-Christian friends to the same party in the hope that they'll talk to each other? How much more would it strengthen you for Jesus' sake to go and join a new club or interest group with the intention of making some non-Christian friends that you can try to talk to Jesus, talk to about Jesus 
because after 15 years at your current club, you know it's never going to happen there. How much more would it strengthen you to invite your neighbours to church for Christmas? If you really believe that the worst thing that can happen is you die and get raised to eternal life, how much difference would it make to the way you went about life as a Christian? So I guess at the bottom line, after not just this talk but all five of them, we come down to two questions. Are you convinced that God raised Jesus from the dead? And are you convinced that as he raised Jesus, so he will raise you? The Christian life wasn't meant to be easy. But take courage, child. It will be glorious. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.